It's the Loose Filter Podcast with your hosts, Stuart Sims and Anthony Campolo. And we are finally, finally, finally delivering our third installment of the history of punk. The trilogy. Yeah. And this one is a, a series of episodes Anthony was very passionate about and uh, his brainchild and he's done the uh the research and outlining for all three installments it they've also been parts one and two some of our most uh enthusiastically received and among our most listened to and downloaded episodes too yeah i think it's good because everyone knows punk music but they may not know the history of it so it was pretty accessible in that respect Absolutely. And it got a lot of comments like, uh, oh, I wouldn't have, even from people who are fans and who know, knowledgeable fans. Yeah, Dave. Oh, I wouldn't have thought, well, and all, I'm thinking also of, of other folks I know who mentioned it to me. Uh, I wouldn't have thought of that, or I wouldn't have thought to start there. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have included that in punk, but now I get why it is. And for me, being the kind of uh, dumb tag along here, uh, the initiate really, I mean, I think I'm kind of the the connection to the common listener in that sense. I don't have any real specialty knowledge about the style and, and, and practice and culture and influence, as I've said in the previous episodes. Um, but uh, uh, it's something that, like you just described, I mean, I know what it is. I've always known it was there. But when you start looking at it, as we have discovered, it is deeply influential, uh, not just culturally, but uh, in terms of uh, uh, like in practical ways, in terms of practice. And I know that's something that you're going to talk about a lot in this installment. Uh, but before we uh, got into that, I want to uh, hand it off to you, Anthony, to recap parts one and two uh, to set the stage and and then take us off here on the third leg of our journey in the history of punk. Sure. This is the episode that I was really most excited to do and have been kind of leading towards. Um, so for the first one, we did the Velvet Underground, and that was it. That's really the founding uh, document, their first album, The Velvet Underground and Nico. It hits all of the countercultural themes, the uh, independent do-it-yourself production, the really uh, different sort of timbral effects with the instruments, and we... We also linked how we kind of grew out of the musical avant-garde in New York of the time, too. Uh-huh, and connected to the art world in really interesting ways as well. That's an album that launched a thousand bands. It's one of those things where you had a whole reaction to just this one thing that people rallied around. And episode two, we see the development of the CBGB scene in New York. So this is the Stooges, Patti Smith, and television is like the proto-punk kind of phase. And then what people usually think of as punk, which is the Ramones, the Sex Pistols, and the Clash. So that was the set of bands that we went over for episode two. Part two, right. Just part, part two, two. Yeah. yes. Episode something, I don't know, 30-something, I don't know what it was. <laughs> and so now in part three, we're moving into, uh, in terms of chronology, part one roughly was mid through late 60s. Uh, part two, roughly speaking, was the 1970s. Exactly. And now we're going 1980s and spilling over into the early 1990s. Yeah, most of the stuff will be in the 80s and early 90s, but it does feed into a lot of bands today because I really see this as the groundwork that led to what we think of as quote unquote 
indie rock or independent bands. It's kind of a catch-all term and has become really blurry, but this is the set of bands that really started the underground do-it-yourself music movement. And are these mostly American bands? Yeah, this... So that's a shift, right? The 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 Especially the trio of bands you mentioned, The Clash and uh, the Sex Pistols and the Ramones, who like the, the iconically punk bands with the fashion and the attitude and et cetera, British. Yeah, well, Ramones being New York, but yeah. Uh, New York, oh my God, yeah, you're right. But The Clash and and certainly... Um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's an interesting point of contention sorry, because sorry. The, the proto-punk stuff, yeah, was New York and then we had Sex Pistols and The Clash and that was like, oh, everyone knows this, this is punk. So it did... Uh, a little People bit like rock kind of in the 70s, idea. though. Yeah, Jumped uh-huh. the Atlantic back and forth and yeah. fed fed the two calls of UK culture and the American culture. But uh, uh, here, this is now where people who are around my age, Generation Xers, those of us in your sort of mid to late 30s and then through into your 40s, uh, will recognize this music from having grown up around it. Maybe you loved it. For me, I identified it with the skater kids. I wouldn't have thought of them as punk at that time, uh-huh. but that's where it shifted to. And uh, uh, yeah, so that's this may uh, ring a little more familiar uh, for a lot of you than what we've talked about previously in these episodes. Exactly. So to set the stage, we had the late 70s, which was the Sex Pistols and the Clash in England, and it really blew up into this huge movement. So now we have in America in the early 80s, we have what we call quote unquote hardcore, which is... Basically, when punks heard the first punk stuff, and then a year later, like, ah, these these guys are sellouts. Let's go even more punk. So they took it to even more of an extreme of speed, of aggression, of just kind of pushing it as, as far as you can. And so that's that's going to be the first couple bands we're going to listen to. They're they're very, very aggressive. But um, it's it's funny. We're, we're going to end up at, like, the shins. So... <laughs> And so we're talking, what what year are we talking here? First, first band you're going to play, we're going to listen to is Black Flag, right? Yeah, and it's going to be really important to look at not just the bands, but the, the labels that the bands were creating. So we had independent labels, like regional labels, throughout the 50s and 60s. That's where you got Sun and a lot of the early rock music. But what was different with these bands is... They weren't just creating like a regional label for musicians who were already established. They were building from the ground up their own projects from recording, uh, marketing, pressing their own everything and creating their own uh, tours, everything, the entire process. And this was an ethos that was widespread too, because it's the uh, origination of uh, zines, do-it-yourself magazine publishing. I mean, there's a little bit longer yeah, some history, of, some but there of the... was a spike, definitely. And also in comic books, uh, independent black and white comic publishers for the first time gained kind of, kind of a critical mass in the 80s too. Yeah, there's going to be a handful of labels here that started originally as fanzines, and then it turned into a label because it's like, what what is a label? <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Your this is your your age is showing. You say fanzines, it's zines. Yeah. <laughs> now those of us who grew up with it, we know that you clearly it's a magazine. <laughs> Anthony, y'all, Anthony is too like he's pushing thirty here, but he. Uh, Clearly is too young to have ever like read an actual magazine. He knows of magazines. You may you may have vanishing memories from your young childhood of seeing them in the store. 
I was I was peak blog, so yeah. this was definitely so blog blog yeah, was the all, thing. Yeah. all about blogs discovering. So these right, bands. it's just magazine zine, right? Mm-hmm. So that's how yeah. So so zine culture. So there was a direct connection there. Then some of these folks were self publishing that, uh-huh. and then started self. So this was the first time we were talking a little bit before we started recording too. That at least in the states, uh, commercial music was editorial uh, was had no editorial content control, right? Because they weren't working for companies. Uh, with you know executives and <laughs> stocks and shareholders and all that. Yeah, stuff. a lot of these people created their own labels because there weren't any labels that were going to release their music. Right, and they couldn't exactly censor some of what they were doing uh, because you know, like the butthole servers. You know, it's right in the name. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is pre parental advisory stickers. <laughs> so okay, first track. Tell us about the first thing we're going to listen to. This is sets the scene. Nineteen eighty. What is this? Three or something? Well, this is okay. So this is Black Flag, who released their first full length album in nineteen eighty one, and oh. they are on SST Records, which was created by Greg Ginn, who is the founder of Black Flag. And this is the label that's really going to set the standard and is going to be the benchmark for a lot of these other labels that we're going to look Did at. he have a specific motivation for do it yourself or he just couldn't get a label to record and release their music or there were things he didn't want to deal with or he just wanted to be entrepreneurial? Do you I think it was he was entrepreneurial. The actual company, SST, was originally called Solid State Tuners because he was selling like electronic equipment when, when he was a kid. He was oh, just okay. one of those kind of like tinkerer types. Okay, got it. Got it. Okay, so yeah, it's like a, out of a maker, that maker, American maker culture and maker yeah, spirit. Yeah, these, there's a lot of mavericks. I can just here. do it this myself because the technology started to become available. Certain cassette tapes, mm-hmm. you can duplicate those much more easily than you can LPs, record albums. And the, the cost of going into a studio per hour had gotten to be fairly reasonable. Okay, so the track we're going to listen to is Rise Above. Rise Above. Dallas, coward, ride the cold. Rise above, we're going to rise above. Make this score, what we say. Rise above, we're going to rise above. Try to stop, what we do. That's Henry Rollins on vocals, who ended up becoming a, a huge personality in, in the music industry afterwards. And more generally, right? Doing taking acting roles and he's published uh a few things and yeah yeah he was he was super young when he when he started doing this and these guys they they were so hardcore like the name really does does make a lot of sense because they just so much aggression well, so much male I hear, aggression i can hear its stylistic roots musically to what we were listening to in the 70s it's a, a very raw sound it's uh clearly recorded all at once and all in one take the shouty vocals the group shouty vocals uh-huh. uh the it, the the general expressive feel of anger and aggression it's a young man's uh, testosterone fueled kind of music just like the uh british punk bands um uh, so i i can definitely hear that the sound is different there's a different aesthetic whether it's intentional or unintentional you know it might be unintentional it's more just lo-fi. 
homemade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's lo-fi. So the sounds are uh, stuffier, uh, and there is not a lot of like uh, cohesion in the sound world. You know, like like it, it's it's like not everything is uh, picking up equally in the mix. There, there is no mix. It's just everybody's feeding into thing. And on There's the tape, a kind and of workmanlike quality too. Of just yeah. like we're gonna we're gonna go in there, we're gonna carve out something with the tools we have, and then put it out there. Like in the American folk art tradition, the imperfections are the inexpert parts of it are features not bugs almost totally so and that was the original ethos with something like the ramones it was taking rock back to its simpler more accessible more communitarian almost way of music making so we were talking about the male aggression aspect this next band this is now going to be on the other side of the country in washington dc instead of uh, socal and minor threat is a really pivotal band and took the aggressive angle and kind of inverted it and it invented straight edge, which was a sober movement within the punk scene because so many people were getting strung out on, on heroin, on crack, and they, they saw this and they actually wanted to rebel against that. So this is a filler. Their songs are like one to one and a half minutes long. It's it's crazy. So not much uh, of a difference or a shift uh, musically, right? In terms of the sound palette, sound palette. Pardon me. It's uh, still the same kind of straight ahead homemade stuff. I think it's important to think about what else was going on in garages and things in the U.S. in the late '70s and early '80s, right? Some of our big tech companies and like. So this is not just a music. This is a whole sort of cultural thing that that is happening so what is uh uh so the straight edge thing is there uh anything that minor threat they're on are they on their own label different label so this same is same sort of thing exactly the same thing as we saw with greg ginn and sst ian mckay who was the lead singer of minor threat started discord records and they that's a label exact- i recognize actually yeah, mm-hmm. okay. yeah so this is on the entire other side of the country And we're going to see other labels that are in different states. And what we see over time is these bands start to link together and form a network. So these are just these bands like as kids. And this next one is a good contrast. And it shows what happens later once they have a little bit better handle on their tools and what they're going for. This is Fagazi, which includes Ian McKay again from Minor Threat and some members of a band, Rites of Spring. And they were kind of the original emo bands in the like first term of it. That was really different from what it became. But this is a song called Waiting Room. Are they on the same record label on McKay's yes. record uh-huh. label? Yeah, okay. so this is still Discord. Okay, so this is Waiting Room, Fugazi.
Yeah. Minor Threat track was 1981, and this is 1988. So we see how they really start to grow a lot as musicians and have this space to create whole new types of sounds. This one definitely, to me, shows musical uh, growth evolution stylistically from what we heard in the early 80s. They've uh, slowed down <laughs> a little bit, definitely. The yeah. music's not as frantic. Yeah, there's a little rhythm to it now, a little bit of uh, actually, you know, bounce. <laughs> and it's a little more, it's composed, right? It's They're not just grinding through chords, meh, 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 like on quarter notes or whatever. They're, they're thinking about more compositional ideas. It's got a little bit of a groove to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they give a lot more space dynamically, but also in terms of frequency space orchestrationally for the lead singer's voice. Like in a more what we would expect from a, a studio rock uh, sound, uh, especially starting mid to late 80s, really real clarity on the singer's voice. I was laughing as we were listening to this here uh, while recording because Anthony mentioned this is sort of the start, the foundation of emo mm-hmm. as a subgenre. And I, I said, are you kidding me? Is emo... <laughs> The affect and the kind of style from emo is that is it because the punk singers, when you remove all that noise and density away from their voice, that kind of yelly, warbly voice, they just have a lot of feels. It sounds like they're just yeah, they just have a lot of feels, and so it tipped us over into emo. Uh, but I can totally hear getting all that stuff out of the way of the singer's voice with that same angsty delivery, just backing it off from a scream a little bit where you can actually sing. I actually hear what you, I mean. I absolutely hear what you're talking about. The the foundations of emo there in that vocal line, and it's just it makes you want to sing along. It makes you want to just you know engage with the music. It's, yeah, it's not only going slower; it's got more room just in there to listen mm-hmm. and to to enjoy. Both of you and I, we were listening to the clip, started nodding our heads. We were like, "Yeah, it's a good groove." All right. Uh, so the next, now we go to the replacements. Yeah. Yeah. So now we're gonna look at bands that kind of fell in the middle. Of the 80s, once we had a couple start to come out in the early 80s, people started to get inspired to create their own labels, to create their own bands, and The Replacements has become one of the most highly regarded and really critically respected bands from this era. A lot of these bands were you know, kind of passed over in terms of music history, but The Replacements have really been picked up by a lot of people. This is a track, Unsatisfied. Sounds like neo Dylan, neo folk more than it does punk. What makes that punk? That's a good question. That's not even the least punk thing that we're going to hear on this episode. We're going to see that the DIY culture started with punk bands, but quickly spread to a lot of different types of sounds. These guys were their own label. They were on Twin Tone. And they were doing the same thing that the other bands were doing, that they created their own stuff, they put together their own tours, 
and they were a little more rock, a little more like a classic rock band in some respect, but they were still really punk in that they showed up completely wasted to their gigs and just like so, were a complete, so you're, they were a total mess. And that they were on their own, do it yourself, you know, uh, their own label, and so uh-huh. so so your framing here really, and and it has been true for the other episodes, I think that. Uh, as much as the music itself, stylistically speaking, the term punk, like hip hop, describes different cultural behaviors. Mm-hmm. So a way of creating art communally, and and also like hip hop, it describes ways of interfacing in a capitalistic culture where what you make is commodified to some degree. Has to be for you to be able to make a living doing it you're your own brand yeah you won't have a patron um uh maybe now we have different mechanisms but certainly not in the 1980s and you said this was 84 yeah this was 84 and this was a couple albums in once they polished up a little bit if you listen to the really early stuff it's it's all over the place and so so really less so even than the sounds they made uh how they made them (laughs) and and the general cultural scene qualifies uh uh these bands we're listening to is punk. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right on. All right. So uh, the next uh, group, the Minutemen. The Minutemen. Minutemen are great. They were a trio that incorporated lots of really weird funk and all sorts of different stuff. And they they don't really make sense by themselves. And where where were they recording? Where, on their own label uh, also? These, okay, so now we're going to be getting to a set of bands that all ended up on SST. So it's really okay, important. Okay, and this is SST is back, Black Flag. Uh-huh. Uh, okay, first that we listen to. Yep, so the next five tracks that we're going to listen to, these were all of the bands that really defined what we think of as the SST lineup, and this was this was the label to be on. And so what years are we talking about here? Uh, it'll be 1984 to 1987. Okay, so you said the next five. So the bands we're talking about are Minutemen, Hooskadoo, Bad Brains, Butthole Surfers, and Sonic Youth. Sorry, uh, Dinosaur Jr., not Butthole Surfers. Oh, not Butthole Surfers. Sorry, Dinosaur Jr. So Dinosaur Jr., Sonic Youth, Bad Brains, Hooskadoo, Minutemen. Yes, exactly. These guys were drawn to SST because of Black Flag, because Greg Ginn had a reputation of just going out there and, and doing it and putting together really great bands. And this started to become a, a magnet for talent. So we, we see immediately how in its various cycles, the, the chunks we've done almost by decade as punk is reinventing itself. The process, the tools that they develop are the fertilizer and the seed for the next wave it's very, it's like an evolutionary, almost like yeah. survival of the fittest type thing. Yeah, yeah. One or two guys figured out how to do this and did it. And so SST now can go and be a label just a handful of years later mm-hmm. for other bands. Exactly. And that's Bootstrapping why... Bootstrapping each other uh-huh. up in And that so sense. This, is, this is all leading to something, which is what we'll, we'll get to okay. towards the end of the episode. Okay, so here we go. This is now uh, the first one. D's Car Jam, Minute Men. i 
trying to say, how can I express, let alone possess? Okay, so that's very distinctive. I'm hearing there's a little bit of jazz underpinnings, a fair bit of Frank Zappa. Yeah, yeah. Like a, a heavy dose of uh, even Captain Beefheart, maybe. Totally. Um, mm-hmm. but, but experimental avant-garde rock and jazz from the 60s. Definitely there's a heaping helping in that. And a little bit of like a, uh, a sprinkling of reggae in those the the bright guitar on two and four when the verse had a groove going there that just a little flavor of reggae in there and this is where the sound my ear goes okay wait a minute now i know this this is skater music (laughs) it's true a lot of this leads to like the tony hawk soundtrack you know these these bands they really captured youth's imagination well and at the same this is what was going on with the skate kids they were the ones who made the companies mm-hmm. who founded the biggest companies yeah um, Dogtown. yeah yeah all those guys uh uh and they were the outsiders they were the do-it-yourselfers they even had to figure out their whole darn they had to invent their sport and and so in the 80s listening to this music if you were a skater kid you were in the thick of these guys still inventing the sport and mm-hmm. developing gear and uh, and what started as a do-it-yourself thing like Thrasher Magazine, this outsider zine started getting, you know, moving into the mainstream and becoming a mainstream chunk of culture. But this is the first stylistic pivot uh, where I've connected all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's really cool how these bands can come up with these different weird combinations of sounds and it would have been really hard to have gotten signed to a label sounding like these guys. Absolutely. And so the next one is uh, another uh, SSD, Husker Du. Uh-huh. And the track is uh, Something I Learned Today. This is another really big influence on the emo scene, especially as they got into more acoustic type sounds. These guys were really aggressive like the other bands, but they also would kind of temper that with other more melodic songs. This next band is Bad Brains, and they're a really interesting case because they were also really influenced by reggae. You were saying you heard a little reggae influence before. Just a little bit, like, <clears throat> a, like, like the salt on top, yeah. Yeah, this... Probably won't come through too much on on this track, but these guys were also really big into reggae and in that whole scene. So this is Eye Against Eye. In a quest for the test, it's a feeling of team, and everybody's always on it to see yourself. But the fucking map, the truth is going dead, never stand on helping him to anyone else. 
Tell me your ride is half the line Trying to make me a confused about the USA When the fact of my mind is just on here To comprehend and overstand and see your words It's interesting to hear the shift go from, uh, you know, like with the Sex Pistols, like I am rebelling, I am trying to define myself against this uh, conformist, you know, oppressive feeling society that I'm in to this internal shift to this is how it feels to be a rebel and an outcast and a misfit. And so I can see now the transition from punk to emo. It goes from like being punk to man, it's it sure is hard to be punk. Yeah, it's like they <laughs> a all, little bit eye against eye, right? Yeah, it's like they all kind of just gave up on politics after like two years and were just like, oh, let's I mean, just after write- Reagan got elected, I think it took the uh, <laughs> took the wind out of a lot of sails. Yeah, well, that, that partly fueled the the hardcore movement, but but yeah, you had this big shift to. Uh, just introspective lyrics, which you, you didn't really have before. I mean, you had the Ramones singing about sniffing glue. So very big shift. The next two bands that we're going to listen to is where we start to get closer to what you might call alt rock. And they really take a good, u- they use really cool guitar tones in the sense of like the pedals and all the different ways they can shape their sound. They really took it to another level. So this is Sonic Youth and Dinosaur Jr. So that was Sonic Youth, and now we're going to hear Dinosaur Jr. Correct.
So that was Sludge Feast. What year is that, the Dinosaur Jr.? Both of those were 1987. Wow. Okay, so especially in the Dinosaur Jr. track, you hear influence like on Tom York, Radiohead, but even backing up a little bit, Blind Melon, like some of the early, late 80s, early 90s, bigger alt or uh, alt rock kind of bands. Uh-huh. Like you, like absolutely I can hear their DNA now emerging from how punk is shifting through the middle 80s. Exactly. It's really cool because for so many people in the 90s, they got hit with all these bands and all these new sounds, and it, it seems to come out of nowhere. And it wasn't really until after the fact that you could map this whole emergent music phenomenon that was happening that led to it. How widely distributed were these recordings uh, at the time? Like, uh, I'm growing up in South Louisiana, so uh, I know, I mean, I could get cassettes of most of, uh, a lot of these bands. I know my my friends were listening to them if I wasn't listening to them, but... Um, you know, at first, Dinosaur Junior, Sonic Youth, before they really blew up and sub pop got picked up by corporate and redistributed, you know, and we got re-releases of those albums. How available were they? Sure. So something like Minor Threats albums, they were pressing a couple thousand copies, a very, so regional, very small Regional amount. only. And to ship to people that had the the magazine, the, the zines. The zines. The zines. <laughs> and... Um, you had the got a got an infant over here, twenty first century baby. Yeah, so there was a very small amount of the late of the records being pressed until we started to see it grow as the decade goes on. With Sonic Youth, with that one sister, they would have been closer to maybe like a hundred thousand copies, and then this was right before they got picked up by the labels. Okay, by the big labels. Okay, and uh, certainly through the zines, you could order. Right, and 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 you, a lot of this was getting yeah, bigger were, geographical reach, literally mail order. Mail order was a big reason that this was able to be done, that it wasn't just a regional thing. They could build up a fan base in a town across the country and then book tours that would map their networks. The next band who would have been legendary had their music never even been made. <laughs> the sort of competence going with a band name like Butthole surfers, uh, I think, just uh, uh, shines through readily. But but uh, tell us about this track. Yeah, the, this is uh, the butthole surfers is one of those bands where you, you really can't explain it logically because they just it, it's data. You know, they, they just wanted to go so ridiculous, so left field, and revel in the sheer absurdity of of what they could get away with the the album this, that this is on is called locust abortion technician is are they on their own label or okay good yeah so this is now touch and go this is chicago so we've seen socal with sst and we've seen washington dc with discord the replacements were on uh, minneapolis label and so now we're seeing it start to fill out among the different states and major you know metropolitan areas and where is uh what what label or butthole servers on so this is touch and go records and they're where that's chicago oh chicago that's you know um and you know steve albini yeah that name rings about yeah he's so steve albini is like a node that connects to almost everyone in this network he was in the band big black and also produced the like the Pixies albums. Okay. He produced okay. all sorts of stuff like that. Okay. So Touch and Go is where we get to this 
really, really industrial, abrasive aspect of the music. Okay, this is Sweat Loaf. Daddy? Yes, son? What, 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 what does regret mean? Well, son, a funny thing about regret is that it's better to regret something you have done than to regret something you haven't done. And by the way, if you see your mom this weekend, would you be sure and tell her, Satan! 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 The awesome punchline to this is they ended up with a bigger hit than any of these bands in the 90s. They had a hit song. Well, and this is the first track we've listened to where there's some real production savvy being brought to the density and aggression in the sound. Yeah, we're getting to the almost Velvet Underground type way of shaping the sound and using now these darker timbres and really almost you know macabre type sounds. What year is uh, is this album? So this is also 1987. That makes sense then, because this is I'm hearing an, in the production aesthetic, if nothing else, a connection to the like death metal, speed metal bands like Slayer and uh, yeah, oh yeah, you know, I mean, I, I'd have to look them all, but that whole Anthrax, rack of Anthrax, all right in there, like 86, 87, 88 were when those 89, when those uh-huh. albums were really hitting. And there were, there was some cross-pollination there, but I this is the first time really, maybe in a couple, a little bit in the earlier tracks with some, but here, definitely absolutely in production too, the way the, the distortion and the, the sound is like compressed and, and jammed forward. Uh, uh, I can hear a connection there too. Huh. All right, so now we move to a band that was so beloved in my skater friends' hearts. The logo was drawn on many bodies and notebooks the dead kennedys the dead kennedys we're now going to be looking at a long line of california based punk labels that led to green day and a lot of the really popular ska music in the 90s so this is alternative tentacles is the name of the dead kennedys uh record label and the track is california uber ales
Now I can hear in this sound, it makes a lot more sense to me that grunge is a West Coast and Pacific Northwest phenomenon. You said this was a San Francisco-based label. Yes, exactly. We're getting to the the grunge stuff for Now sure. in, in this sound is where I can absolutely hear it in, in the Dead Kennedys, definitely. Yeah, Dead Kennedys were, to me, definitely the most skater of, of all these bands. When I think about their kind of sounds, they were in the, the very first Tony Hawk game. They had a song, actually. Yeah, and what popped out to me stylistically is the really prominent bass. Like, it's the lead singer and the bass is what drives the verses. Yeah, it's really driving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's. I wonder if that's a little bit of a reggae connection. Yeah, probably. Uh, I mean, not the sound itself, but the idea, the way that it's the what they're doing is the the giant sound systems and giant bass systems. Yeah, they they were really influenced. Uh, Fugazi is a perfect example of a band that really elevated the bass to a great extent. Yeah, and it also saves the guitar for really bringing the noise in the choruses too. Yeah, and like you said, fills out the makes the sound more open and allows the the singer to have more room, all that stuff. Yeah, to be more expressive, just like you, a composer, and did. 300 years ago would have to worry about music be music. Uh, okay. So the next band is uh, mud honey, same label. This is now a uh, sub pop. This is a label that almost oh, everyone sub-pop, who's, sure. who's yeah. into indie music will know. This is the label that signed Nirvana and then eventually went on to release the shins and postal service. So this is what your mud honey. The track is touch me. I'm sick. This is 1988. So this is the year before Nirvana releases Bleach. And is the, are they based in Seattle? Yes. All right. Uh, Mud Honey, Touch Me, I'm Sick. So my impression on that is the, this is a punk band that's very influenced by Jimi Hendrix and the Jimi Hendrix experience, the sound of their albums. Uh-huh. That's an interesting phenomenon that happens with these bands is they they react against what the first punks were reacting against because the first punks, like the Ramones, wanted to get rid of guitar solos. And now we have bands like Dinosaur Jr. or Mudhoney who are going back to, no, like we can we can do cool stuff on the guitar too. So they kind of relax a lot of the taboos that were created in the first generation of punk. And it's like we were talking about, it's always, you know, bouncing back and forth. It's interesting too, that the, the bands themselves had to, out of necessity, develop a, uh, you know, an approach to production because that's part of the composition process when you're making a recording. So, you know, none of these punk bands in the seventies cared about it. Somebody just took care of it or they just recorded it and whatever the heck they got was what they got. But since they're doing it themselves, these record labels, the same people making the songs play, you know, writing songs and performing them have to think about how they're recording them too. And so it's interesting going down your playlist for this episode and hearing the production get more and more sophisticated and it emerges starting in this track 
you know, in the one before it, I meant you can hear the grunge sound emerging, but it's the production aesthetic as much as it is the musical style, you know, the, the, the sounds of the instruments and the way they're played, what we traditionally think of as a musical style. Yeah, they were able to take... Like they did it themselves, so they had to hone their craft. Sorry, I didn't, yeah. that was what I was mm-hmm. trying to say. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's almost like they, they figured out the ways to turn all of their weaknesses into strengths. They said, okay, if we're going to have you know grungy-sounding recordings, then let's make music that's going to sound good recorded grungily, you know? So that was now the Seattle music scene that led to Nirvana. We really have a big moment for this type of music in 1991 you have nevermind which all of you have heard so we're not gonna play that but that was really the culmination of all of these bands and what they were doing as they were building up their fan bases would you say that and the bands around them are where grunge emerged away from punk as its own style Uh uh-huh it came as it's almost like pre-packaged new style that could be sold to America. It was a lot like in 1977 when you had the Ramones and the Sex Pistols and they were flashy and, and different and got everyone's attention. So this happens again now in 1991 and there's a mad rush to sign all of these weird bands. That's how you get the butthole surfers getting signed to a major label. And not having to change the name of the band. Yeah, uh, so the next track, what's happening? The uh, beat happening track is Bewitched. What's what's going on here? So when I said that the replacements weren't the least punk, this is definitely the least punk thing that we're gonna hear. So what makes it punk? It's DIY. It's still just a guy making his own label. Uh, this is K Records in Olympia, Washington. This is the label that will lead to uh, Modest Mouse and the Microphones. Uh, we're really getting closer to this indie folk sort of aesthetic that really blows up in the in the mid 2000s. So this is laying the the foundation for that. This is beat happening, bewitched. They're a bit of an acquired taste. Well, but it's to me almost like rock roots music. I mean, it's like Louie Louie, but stripped down even more. You know, I mean, it's no, I that sounds like punk music to me. But like if you stripped out, you know, 80 percent of it. Yeah. And that's how they were thinking about it. They wanted to minimalist punk. Yeah. And just pushing kind of everything to the extremes of whatever angle you, you could push it to the extreme. So they really wanted to have something. It was almost like a, a nursery rhyme, just something really, really easy and simple. Well, in production wise, it's really interesting because it sounds like there's a lot of space, especially that kind of kick drum in the back on gun, gun, gun. Like it had a lot of space, but the guitar was this super tight, compressed sound, but it was like this super dense thing in a really big space. And that the singer was this, you know, kind of dry focus sound, but was really far away from the guitar sound. It was like 
small focused sounds in a big space. I think that's probably trying to emulate what they would have sounded like live. It was just a guitar player, a singer, and a drummer. There, there was no bass player in the band. That's why it sounds really tinny. Jack White before Jack White was Jack White. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Uh, and so then the uh, uh, next track is uh, Operation Ivy Jaded. What year uh, are we talking about? Where? Why? Now we're in 1988. This is now wow, getting... So all of this is from like, it is 81 to 80, is seven years Yeah, um... that we've covered in terms of the evolution of the style, the proliferation of activity, the... the this is something essential about American culture that this highlights the incredible fecund nature. Once it starts, it starts rolling real fast. And and because it's do it yourself, like you, you know, when you do figure it out, you provide, you're able to help bootstrap other people up. Like we see with these labels over and over again, Because you don't need permission. There's no gatekeepers. There's no one who can stop you from doing this. If you have art, that's valid. And, and making the thing attracts other people who want to make the thing too. And mm-hmm. so then you get more bands on your label, and then now you've got a sound because you have a roster of artists and so on. Fascinating. And this happens, I mean, we could sit here easily for an hour and probably just brainstorm instances in the last 100, 125 years in American culture all over this place, all kind of media, artistic media, all kinds of different places where this happens over and in industry. I mean, the whole computer revolution, my goodness. Uh, first the computers period, but then the, certainly the home computing revolution, video games, blah, blah, blah. I mean, on and on and on through this period, late, mid, late seventies through the eighties. Uh, uh, and so this is really bringing to light, um, the origins of what now that we're landing into what it, it, you know, the fruit that it bore in the nineties and into the aughts. I mean, we're talking about post-rock like Radiohead, big, Big, big Pearl Jam. I mean, big time acts, mainstream, multi-million dollar stadium filling music acts. Yeah, to me, this is the last interesting thing that happened in rock music. Like after this, it's there really wasn't. There was the White Stripes and there was the Strokes, which was kind of a, yeah, well, a the throwback type music type mainstream thing. Moved to hip hop. So yeah, so this yeah. is really the the last flowering of rock musicians creating brand new sounds from the beginning and doing everything in a way that they didn't have to compromise. So what about Jaded? Why are we listening to Jaded? Where are we? 88. Sorry, I interrupted the introduction to this. Uh, 1988 Operation uh, Ivy. This is now Bay Area, Berkeley, California, Lookout Records. This will be the label that will sign Green Day. And they had the Gilman, which is an incredible venue that I got to go to and see some really great bands at. And they helped foster uh, the community uh, youth being able to go to shows because there was a lot of shows that weren't uh, kid friendly in the sense that, you know, they were 21 over or something like that. But a lot of these bands wanted to have a community space. This also harkens back to the, the straight edge movement in a lot of ways. So we really see these bands they they built up their own their own community and that to me seems a natural ethos like punk if it had a political affiliation would seems to be socialist or social democratic it certainly would be anarchist a little bit <laughs> anarchist would be collectivist uh-huh, at least yeah. i think in terms in its practical sense yeah uh, and so this is uh, jaded the track jaded from operation ivy operation ivy and this is the first like full on 100% ska band 
Before you had horns in, in every single ska band, but this is what would lead to uh, Streetlight Manifesto, Less Than Jake, the one of the biggest mainstream successes of of this whole punk movement ended up being a lot of those ska bands. Continuing on with the California punk scene, now we have in LA Epitaph Records with a band that is pretty well known, I think, Bad Religion, uh, really cerebral band in their their lyrics and their their outlook and great melodies awesome musicianship they're a band that really raised the the level of quality in a lot of respects in terms of what they were putting out this absolutely was one of the bands uh that had much bigger popular consciousness i think um uh, than than some of the other acts that are on our playlist. Yeah, here. and we're in 1989. 1980, and this is the track "No Control," bad religion. Culture was the seed of proliferation, but it's got it melted into an inharmonical, to an inharmonical consciousness has plagued us, and we cannot shake it. Though we think we're in control, though we think we're in control, questions that precede us in life are testament of our helplessness. There's no vestige of a beginning, no prospect of an end. When we all disintegrate, we'll all have been again, yeah. Time is so rock solid in the minds of the horrors, but they can't explain why it should slip away. Explain why it should slip away. Well, you really hear that Green Day sound emerging there. <laughs> yeah, we get much more of a pop melodic leaning sense, and that also feeds into Kurt Cobain and Nirvana. He took a lot of these popular bands in this area, and he was like, okay, we can do something that's really punk, but also really accessible in a way, too. It's also the... We finally hear singers with some real vocal technique. Uh-huh. I stopped making some kind of Bob Dylan connection with a lot of the singers. <laughs> and we start getting not just technique, but you know, pitch accuracy, harmonies, and things like that. So yeah, it's nice to hear a little bit, a little bit more sophistication in that regard from the old fuddy duddy here. Yeah, it's it's really cool to see how a lot of these bands progressed and the the scene kept upgrading itself in, in a way. Oh, absolutely. I think every uh, iteration, I, you can't even call it a generation because we're just still even not even two handfuls of years here, but each subsequent iteration, every couple of years when you get a new band cycle in, the it's, it's better. The style is more clearly defined. The production is more skilled uh, and, and the music is more um, composed. It's more, you know, it's more thought out. 
I think. Oh, yeah. And hooks. Hooks for days. Hooks for days. You get a hook and then put a hook in your hook and then you put a hook on that. So now we have Bikini Kill. Yeah, we're in the 90s now and we're seeing the birth of Riot Girl. So this is, again, Olympia. 90s. That was for the 90s, not Riot Girl. Riot Girl gets a yeah. (laughs) So this is uh, 1992. The label is called Kill Rock Stars. They would sign Elliot Smith and Sleater Kinney, the kind of defining band of Riot Girl in a lot of respects. And the track is Double Dare Ya. Sorry. Okay, we're starting now. We're Bikini Kill, and we want revolution. Girls don't The return of the minor key, I notice. Uh-huh. This was... That's how you know they're serious. Yeah, that's they're, they're making art. <laughs> this was... So why Riot Girl? What, what, what's implied by that term? Uh, I think it was taking the same sort of radical, anti-establishment punk ethos, but then putting it through a feminist lens, which makes right, sense. Right, anti-patriarchy and, <laughs> totally. and, and feminist and, and uh, female empowerment. Absolutely featured a lot of uh, a lot of this music, if not uh, just female lead singers, female bands too. Uh huh. Sleater Kinney ended up being an all girl band. Bikini Kill was split half and half. Um, really though, Kathleen Hanna, the singer, was the defining singer of of the Riot Girl movement because she was as punk as as any guy. The next band is Pavement. Pavement. Pavement is the band my friends listened to in college who were cooler than I was at the time because I was busy studying classical music. With the exception of maybe R.E.M., this is peak college radio music. Oh, absolutely. Early 90s college radio. And I I really love, love Pavement. It's so lazy but fun at the same time the way the way he sings it's like the that whole slacker kind of thing this is the band that really embodied that what label is this we're now looking at labels in the late 80s matador and merge are the two we're about to look at so this is matador for pavement and they would eventually have liz fair's album exile in guyville which was a pretty pretty big deal at the time It occurs to me that it's uh, important to underscore the importance of college radio and the proliferation of 
all of these bands and these styles and the ability of, uh, I guess we could characterize them as the immediately post-punk rock genres like emo and grunge. Um, because, you know, I've told you before I laugh, like when Nevermind hit, like the radio was full of hair bands like not even Dudes the with flannels n- not even not even the uh the first generation ones not even your motley crew or whatever it was like warrant and sl- you know um oh man i don't even want to think of the bands but like it was the, awful <laughs> the next day the next day it's it like where they gone. find all these guys was, at one time it was gone and all this other music was there but through the 90s until really the internet displaced it college radios were independent they weren't corporate owned they were sponsored by like academic departments at public universities bottom up this is all bottom up yeah and they had a listening range of young adults who wanted something weird and any of like high school kids in broadcast range of that university and so in the 80s those kids listening to these cassettes that they got through their zines got to college radio and used their university budgets to order CDs from these record labels in the early 90s to the mid-90s. And that's how this music didn't get played on commercial radio. Like, I mean, it did later, subsequently. It was played by people who loved it because it was unlike anything else that was being made. It had fans who said, this music defines me. And it was the, the programming, because it was college radio, who cared who listened, <laughs> but no more to the point. It wasn't uh, profit driven. It didn't have to exist in the market, but it doesn't have to exist in the marketplace because it's the product of uh, a university. And so uh, it's paid for when it starts in that sense. Right. And so, and the students are making it for the love of the thing and to learn how to do the thing. Well, and to play music that's, that seems hip <laughs> most likely. And also to use the medium to within their age cohort broadly, but their university community to create culture, to create cohesion, playing music that the people that go to that school at that time listen to. And so even though it might've been hard to walk into a a record store and hear some of these bands, even in Lafayette, Louisiana, now it's like a 20,000 student public major public university, but still turning on the college radio station, Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, there's a four hour block of show that would just, and over the weekend, sometimes all night, they would play it, and the students would curate it, and they were the ones who loved it. Like you said, it was the fans, out of a love of the music, would put in the work to curate these radio shows, and the rest of us could hear it, and it eventually did become the commercial musical culture. One thing I want to point out about this whole scene, there was a book written in 2001 called Our Band Could Be Your Life, and there was one dude who was watching like you know a VH1 show about the history of rock and he was saying how it jumped from like 1977 to 1991 and he was like huh they don't seem to have caught on to this this whole era of music so he actually because it didn't happen in corporations i yeah. guess yeah so he went out and he, he interviewed every person what is, what is the what do you what's the title so again? our band could be your life and this is why i talk about this was a way that you could actually define yourself of how you how you act in the world in the sense that 
you're not just making a label like you're making your your job <laughs> you our band could be your life <laughs> the, the way that we live our lives in these bands is just the way we want to live and that was a really inspiring idea for for so many people and this book was read by tons and tons of people i was one of them who just was so inspired because they tell these stories of all these bands and the struggles they went through and just how they made you know so little money and went went through the the worst crap and played terrible places but eventually just somehow made it and so maybe then this is uh our food for thought we've still got two more tracks to listen to but i want to say this before i forget food for thought for for us uh if we do if there is an episode four to be done here perhaps it is considering in the late 90s through the i mean i'm sorry in the late 80s but through the the 90s the 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 through the mid 90s what seeds were sown into the late 90s shoot into these bands like the shins and arcade fire for kids like you anthony campolo mm-hmm. or even a little younger born through the 90s so these seeds would have been strewn and these guideposts you know of how to do it yourself uh people who have blazed various trails now y'all are adults doing things with a more sophisticated toolbox than these pioneers could have even imagined 10 to 15 years out from it. So exactly you know, Re- what's happening now yeah, that so we reading need to that. take a look at uh, uh, that is the next generation of, uh, of fruit from all of this. That too. was that was really a thing that inspired me was reading the book in the late 2000s and realizing that these guys would have killed to have all of the tools that we have now to be able to do what they want to do. You can do everything Worldwide now. distribution at the click of a button. Uh-huh. Upload. Bam. Like we'll Bam. do with this episode. Really? No, truly. And we do get downloads from all over the world. When uh, I, I look up yeah, those- Loose filter uh, is DIY. We are the, this ethos right now. Yeah, we're literally, we're sitting in my house. This yeah. yeah, in the studio. Well, it is the front room. It's the music room and where, where uh, Lissette teaches lessons and, and where we do all the recording and production at home. But uh, uh, anyway, we got two more tracks so, still. To close, it out, to, these so are, to close it out. These are two bands that now achieve platinum selling status and even to the point of- Arcade Fire being the first indie band to win a Grammy for Best Album. So this is as making it as you can make it. So punk in the 80s, it became indie rock, indie bands, indie music. Yeah, it became what is now considered the most critically acclaimed hip indie rock music of the last 10 years. So the track we're going to listen to here, the first one, The Shins. Yes, The Shins, which I'm sure lots of people will know, especially if you were either someone who loved or hated Garden State. <laughs> and so why this track, New Slang? Uh, it's a great track and just captured... Typical uh, of their sound? Yeah, typical of their sound and had a, a big impact from being in Garden State, which was a very popular and wh- movie. And what's the label? Where? Uh, the Shins was on Sub Pop. So we already talked about Sub Pop with Mud Honey and Nirvana and then Arcade Fire is going to be on Merge Records. So this is new slang, yeah, the shins. Gold teeth and a curse for this town are all in my mouth Only I don't know how They got out here Turn me 
most punk thing of all. Unplug everything. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really funny how you you end up in in all these different places. Be gently and sweetly musical. Yeah, and this last one, Arcade Fire, is even even more to the just musicality that you can get with a really fantastic group of classically trained musicians. There's you know, string instruments, woodwind instruments. They they have a very orchestral sound. That was in 2004, their first album, Arcade Fire Funeral. It was, they were a Canadian band, and actually this kind of, you know, spread out so far that it all of a sudden started to include Toronto and Vancouver and just kind of kept growing and growing. With Arcade Fire, uh, I also hear an influence in the sound. Uh, they're drawing, and, and to give a, a, a nod toward uh, Jeff Lynn and like ELO and that kind of production sound, trying to create an orchestral Beatles-esque sound in the 70s. And this is it. It's clearly influencing. I think some other bands, a lot of them were produced in the out of the East Bay, like Polyphonics Free, and they were really heavily influenced by that orchestral, multi-instrumental, but folk which is now but re- rock. just really going full circle because this is exactly what punk was created to rebel against. So it's it's so funny to see how it it keeps eating itself almost. It, well, it's like modernism itself. You know the context in which uh, uh, punk, uh, you know, in the first place with Velvet Underground, what those artists were doing in the late fifties and early sixties in New York, uh, well, in in other big cities in San Francisco. Uh, notably too were was was you know deconstructing modernism but what you know and it, you, we sort of put a label like postmodern on a lot of that stuff that started after world war ii especially in the 50s but uh you know beat poets and 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 all that stuff but you you just end up eating yourself and you'll go, you'll end up full circle if you keep deconstructing or reinventing or making new the thing that you do. Mm-hmm. You're going to loop around eventually because uh you know, we're all building on each other's shoulders and and you're right it really is kind of hilarious to hear stylistically how it turns into an inversion itself in this uh 30 uh, 40 year developmental arc that we've uh, listened to in these three episodes. I'm sure there's something to be said for the hyper aggressive entrepreneurial competitive way that these bands were kind of trying to one up each other so it led to people who really wanted to push their art forward and create spaces that they could make better art that wasn't being made because like we said the the bands in the 80s that were popular like 
how could you not create your own musical subculture if that's what you had to deal with? And of course, that's an enduring question in any kind of punk uh, ethos or philosophy is uh, in a culture like uh, we live in, certainly in the United States, but in most of the world, a capitalistic culture, art and commerce are, uh, you know, as often enemies as allies. Strange bedfellows. uh, They're very strange. They're certainly uneasy uh, partners. And uh, when you can find a way to uh, not just uh, make art within a a commerce-driven system, uh, but to leverage it. To, well, to actually build your own system. To, to, yeah, to build yeah. leverage it to to give you even better tools to make your own art than you might have had otherwise. It's no mean feat. And that's something that in any manifest any manifestation of the punk ethos, I think there we could talk forever about the balancing act of that. Like when do you become a sellout? When have you tipped the balance too far yeah, and, to the system uh-huh. and left your art or your 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 values or whatever behind? Yeah, so I should point out that Everything we listened to in this episode were the bands before they signed to major labels. A lot of these ones were actually the album right before they went to to a major label. So like Sonic Youth or or Mud Honey, this was after they kind of got their sound by themselves up to their kind of top level, and then they they got picked up by the by the major leagues. So this is right before they all kind of got a little more glossy. Some of them like the butthole servers being a good example like you they had to tone it down they they wouldn't have been able to just keep making that music on a major label there the the execs would have gone nuts true and it raises the question you know is there anything wrong with wanting to find an audience a bigger audience Uh you know that's i mean that's as valid an artistic pursuit certainly as a musician uh where the art that you create is an experience for people who yeah you if you uh uh Anyway, and and it's interesting that the Shins and, and this later punk sound uh, really became so culturally widely known, popular, and ubiquitous because it was picked up and used in commercials because it was so distinctive and compelling. And Apple interesting commercials, sounding. Feist, Feist oh, was also the yeah. the Vancouver scene. Uh wow! So so at the end of these three episodes, I think boy, I made my case. Yeah, I think you made your case. <laughs> Not only is punk significant, but it has it is as deeply American an ethos or approach to art making uh, as I think one could find. And certainly in the last 40 years or so uh, in the musical world, I think, Anthony, absolutely you have made your case, is as influential as any other thread uh, that it is woven around and coexists with. Yeah, and could be made a case for being one of the most influential in a lot of ways. Absolutely. So uh, we may or may not uh, look around and try to find a part four, but this is this completes the arc that you had in mind. Yeah, this yeah. is the the three steps of why punk is important, and this really doesn't even get into almost all of the punk music that I love the most because now we have in the '90s this insane flowering. You mean by now where we've left our timeline here in the like 93, 94-ish? Yeah, we covered a little bit of the 90s and a little bit of the early 2000s, but there's there have been way, way, way too much music to cover because as we heard, we heard a lot of different kind of styles and, and sounds and almost all these bands, they launched movements around them. Like they would create their own styles that would then s- section off into their own different kind of scenes and 
It, multiple iterations of the Velvet Underground phenomenon. Yeah, that we uh-huh. Talked totally. about in part one, like Sunny Day Real Estate. We could we could easily do a whole episode about like what they did for emo music. So if we wanted to, we could do tons and tons more. About and this. and we might, if our listeners tell us <laughs> that they want us to, uh, you can send us feedback at uh, loosefilter at gmail.com you can find us online at loosefilter.com or soundcloud.com backslash loosefilter and the podcast itself is distributed on itunes and uh everywhere else quality podcasts are cast into the world subscribe please we uh drop new episodes every wednesday here endeth the history of punk and uh, next week, we will have an episode for you that we have not yet decided on, but will be phenomenal and exciting. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Loose Filter Podcast. Thanks for listening.